Massey, Fred Dodsworth, Bobby Coleman, Kathleen Weaver, Bob Baldock, Ziggy Lowenberg, A.D. Winans, Kim Shuck, Dan Brady, Jake Berry, Julie Rogers, Jamela, Pam Kingsbury, Brenda Hillman, Joyce Jenkins, Lenore Weiss, Ivan Arguez, Amos White, Elizabeth Nisparos, and Jack Foley. And that was recited at the auditorium of the main library in San Francisco. Al Young was present, and so were a whole lot of other people. It was a wonderful event. And uh, Al went on to speak of his late wife, Oral, who had been an enormous factor in his life, and he talked about that. And, of course, in some sense or another, her spirit was present, even though she passed away not too long ago, uh, leaving Alan something of a funk, which was one of the reasons why we did this event. It cheered him up. It cheered everybody up, as Al does. Well, I wish I had been there, but I did write a poem for him, which I'll read you. It's very short. For Al Young, California Poet Laureate, Laureate Emeritus. Inclusive, enfolding, warming, welcoming. It's okay if you're just you. When you're with Al Young, you don't need to be with him long to feel accepted in a way that lasts for years. That's true. I think that one of the things that was so interesting was that Al, all of these very, very diverse people, completely different in so many ways, different as poets, different as people, but they all responded to Al. And one of the reasons that the event went so well was the fact that everybody loves him. And there's lots of good reasons for that. Now, speaking of a lot of love and a lot of good reasons, I hear you wrote a lot of poems over 2018, Miss Serrano. Well, not compared to you, Mr. Foley. <laughs> I mean... Well, I mean good ones. <laughs> I mean, I turn on the computer and you've written a poem. <laughs> Cole Porter said that, though, uh, he's got a song about the bluebird, and he says, though, uh, though other birdies in the boughs, though other birdies in the boughs may tell him that he's lousy, uh, he goes on singing anyway. <laughs> I feel like the bluebird. And with that rhyme of bowsy and lousy, good old Cole Porter. <laughs> well, I love your poems. I put together a little poetry roundup. When I, this is the time when I lasso up all the wild things roaming my range of thought to take a look at them and see where I've been and what I made of it. This year I saw too much of the insides of the hospital emergency room. I traveled to Toronto to see my latest production of my play, The Story of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. I created, edited, and recorded radio programs while beginning a YouTube series, Literary Dialogues with Nina Serrano, where I interview fabulous writers and poets. My first program of the year in this new multimedia series will begin with an interview with the marvelous poet Judy Wells, who has just written a beautiful book about her distant relative, Emily Dickinson called Dear Phoebe. 
This year, like you, I shared pleasures and sorrows with family, friends, and co-workers, began new friendships, and mourned my dear ones. I wrote poems about most of it. This one was at the beginning of the year. It was the winter. It was January 2018. The emails were flying between home and KPFA, between paid, unpaid staff and management. KPFA was threatened by immediate bankruptcy. At the last minute, a miracle happened, and once again, we were saved, though we can still feel the shadow in the wings. And this poem was called, Bag Lady Asks. Does the bag have a scissors and scotch tape in it? Does the bag have a Trader Joe's bag inside its plastic self? Does the bag have a sense of urgency? Does the bag know if today was my last radio show? Does the bag know if the chief engineer will return? Or if he leaves, is another master engineer in the wings ready to keep us live on the air? I wish the answers were all in the bag and definitely known to me. Will everything turn out beautifully without insults or injuries? Well, we got through that one. And then metaphysical questions kept arising. And this poem is called Infinity Through Inner Space. Sometimes I feel a person's presence, how I feel when I was with them. In what dimension or what black hole do these shared moments still exist, spiraling through time? which we are told does not exist because time and space are infinite, there is no end as we expand infinitely and all that past presence moves with us. And then came a wonderful event when the poets and artists got together in Benicia and Vallejo Each poet was requested to pick a painting from the gallery exhibit and write and read a poem about it. And so I picked one of a gazebo. In memory of Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass, and inspired by Benicia artist Susan Streeter and the gazebo itself at Benicia, California City Park. Our Gazebo Our gazebo, it becomes hers and mine, the watercolorist and me. I enter her painting, gazing and dreaming under a pink ceiling she painted, covering a white reality. I remember when Johanna invited me to the poet's picnic on that round, romantic, wooden octagon gazebo. I imagined myself standing on it in a younger, more graceful form, balancing a cup of lemonade and a paper plate of potato salad, delicately holding a plastic fork, standing a long time without anything hurting. I am my friendliest, smiling and making friends with all the poets who invite me on walks to recite their latest work. But, In reality, I was unable to attend the picnic. My only real experience of our gazebo 
is in the watercolor, framed in my octogenarian memory, surrounded by leaves of grass. And then came summer. Oh, how I love summer. Summer morning. It was summer, and once again, June was busting out all over, and I always celebrate summer with my friend Susan. Summer morning. I awaken in a warm cocoon of covers, flip the blankets, letting the cooler air embrace me, standing balanced on two slippered feet, filling with the June promise of rosy days, golden hills and juicy fruits, long, long days, light-filled mornings, a bathing suit drying. Bouquets of friendship adventures rekindled out of winter's retreat. It is summer. Susan has summoned it. July came and I wrote a haiku. The night after July 4th, a haiku. No rockets red glare. Firecrackers quieted. Could hear crickets sing. I took summer walks along the water and wrote these two wetlands haikus, egrets. Elegant egrets, long, flexible, beautiful necks, white in blue water. Chickens. Whose chickens are these scavenging on the roadside? Instinctive habits. And then I wrote an octo. That's a poem of eight lines of eight syllables each. Lines four and five rhyme. Then lines one, two, and three repeat in the opposite order. What? You don't understand and can't remember it? Don't worry. You might like this (laughs) poem anyway. Secrets. Piercing questions darting at me. I dodge, giving no reply. Threatening invasion warded off, fortress of my secrets secured, their shadows and silences insured. Threatening invasion warded off, I dodge giving no reply, piercing questions darting at me. Then natural and yet political disaster struck, the fires. Smoke too. July 2018. The wind shifted today. We get a break from the smoke of 32,000 acres of forest burning and maybe plastic and other toxics too. When the fires started, the sun turned red. Liz looked up and called it a Chinese lantern as we drove north along the freeway, not knowing what was happening between the Earth's crust and atmosphere knowing that it was not good as it clouded the sun's rays and covered the car with ash. Now, in its third day of flames, the mountains burn, anxieties sizzle, global warming, climate change, no longer a dire warning, a grotesque presence. We thirst for solutions and clean air. I'm going to interrupt you here, actually. This is KPFA, and politics is something we do here. Um, I'm going to read a poem, if you don't mind, that goes back a ways to the great opera that was written by Bertolt Brecht 
and Kurt Weill. It was first presented in 1930. And these are variations on that opera. There are quotations from the opera and things like that in my poem. It's called Mahagoni 2018. Shine, green, moon of Alabama, light the way. We'll get money when they come to Mandalay. When these migrants come to Mandalay, to Mahagoni, where anything goes. Give me money, says the bar named Mandalay. Money is sex appeal. The great dead cities drain us. This Mahagoni is only because everything's rotten, because there's no peace and no harmony and nothing on which you can rely. Look at those birds, lovers circling. You came from Havana years ago. I came from Alaska. I, Jimmy, seven years in the cold, in the snow-covered woods. I made it and spent it. Now there's nothing left of me. We don't need hurricanes. We don't need typhoons. We can do whatever they do better. Capitalism. Don't let them fool you. It's the business. You don't come back. Of the future. Days in the doorway. To be, but you feel dangerous. The night wind, there's nothing but life. I first heard it over fifty years ago. You stand with the beasts. Ein Mensch is kind tear. They'll use you if you let them. At seventy-eight, I hear it again, Lenya's growly, inimitable voice. The night wind moves me to tears. That's my take on oh, Mahagoni. Jack. I love it. I love it. I, that's right. You've never heard that one. It's not one I've, I've I I do too often. And but I loved Mahagoni. I heard it when I was twenty-one, and it. You know, it had such an impression upon me. I'm 78 and I'm still talking about it. That was a long time for something like that to make an impression, but it did. And one of the things that's great about it is that Brecht doesn't tell you what he sh wants you to do. What he does is to place you in a situation in which he challenges you to know to his play. He puts you in a situation in which he's saying, we can't do anything, we can't help anybody, we can't do anything. And he wants the audience to say no to that. He wants the audience to say, that's baloney. We can do something. He understood that political poetry means transforming people. It does not mean giving your opinion about politics. It means making People different. Marvelous perception, marvelous opera. And he partnered with such a marvelous musician. Oh, vile, yeah, Jesus. When you think of the music to Mahagoni, oh, moon of Alabama. Alabama. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. We now must say goodbye. And, and speaking of saying goodbye, there's another thing that happened recently, and we had to say goodbye to Julia Vinograd. And that was a very sad occasion. And um, Bruce Isaacson, there was a, a very nice memorial to Julia, and another one's going to be coming up quite soon on Sunday, this Sunday, January 6th from 1.30 to 5 p.m. at a place called Chapter 510 and the Department of Make-Believe. That's located at 2301 Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. Um, that's this Sunday, 1.30 to 5. There are going to be all kinds of people there. Chapter 510 and the Department of Make-Believe, 2301 Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. And we have a poem that was written to Julia, which was read to her as she lay dying, by Bruce Isaacson. And I told Bruce, I loved the poem, it made me cry, I thought it was a very deeply moving poem. I said, baby, I know you're in town for about 13 seconds, come over to my house and I'll record it. And he did. And this is it. Bruce Isaacson, I hope we'll be able to do it, it's a pre-recorded thing again. Bruce Isaacson, reading his poem to Julia Vinograd. Julie painted going up the stairs. After he was intubated four days, after the drugs that kept him in a stupor wore off, after they satisfied the gods of cost containment by shipping him like a ham to a nursing home, finally he awoke and started climbing out of the bed, raving about his management responsibilities. We're all pulled along by beliefs. Fortunately, his had six-inch rails on the bed. I've always known Julie to be linked at that cellular level to poetry, but if there were rails, she merely dreamed them away. Poetry has more power than is known. Julia has a bad leg from polio, a mythological disease eliminated by the ability of Franklin Roosevelt to stand, December 11th, 1941. But Julie not only stood, she hobbled up to the med, hawking books every day for 30 years, as inexorable as the German war machine. To stop her, finally, they had to close the med. Still, her image floats over Berkeley like a soap bubble, looking inside all of us, smiling at pride, vanity, hubris, all of it, at the way one kind act can wipe out so much muck, at the desperately serious play of the streets, blues, the saxophonist in shades, playing free at telly in haste or the beauty force of the anklet of the student, rejecting the workaday world as she passes, then finally passing into it. At Pops declaiming, Julie standing against the mural that pictures her, Kitty Corner from where Mario's hole-in-the-wall enchilada Rama used to be, that's across from where Cody's used to be, across from where Julie... Weird and proud, sure, with bats and bone rings and the small Halloween-colored hat still stands beside herself painted, blowing bubbles. Bubbles floating over the park. The park that was a very fine idea, even if it was never much of a park. 
We all hoped one day it would grow up to be a redwood grove, with trees big around as buildings, bigger, more fragrant, smelling of 500 years of low mist and tall ferns, a refuge where people without a place might sleep. Julie never tried to convince me. Somehow she just made me believe. And belief sent me out into the street, 1989, where policemen stood in rows, then advanced, shooting rubber bullets, and I ran away, brave as a latte, ashamed, as Julie watched me from the painting, standing strong as a Zeppelin guitar lick. She understood, though, never wanted me to throw myself at the police. She felt it was enough to stand up and say no, just stand there and say, no, money doesn't need to pave every piece of land of the western expanse. And it was enough. The park is still there. Supposedly now they're going to put dormitories with shiny glass walls that will reflect all of us. Maybe. Maybe there will be a park for my daughter, who is 12, to stand up for when she's 20. Maybe Julie will get better, though it's hard to see how she could get much better than the last book. But she's always worked to get bigger, deeper, to see the world from the view of the breeze that rustles the tops of eucalyptus trees and from the scuttling will of an ant surviving between cracks in pavement. She found me lost, like an ant, at a reading 30-plus years ago. My grandfather had just died, and she galumphed over, smiling but shy, not quite making eye contact to say she liked my poem. And later that week, we had coffee, in the Med, of course, and she was already famous, a big article in the Chronicle that Sunday. I was young, barely formed, alone as a tune hummed in the dark, as if on a craggy trail that leads over cliffs, knowing nowhere else to go. And all she did was believe in me. It changed me totally. She led me along by listening to my poems and ideas and rantings and false love affairs with barely any people in them and real ones that hurt, that even hurt Julie somehow, the way real things hurt the way not having Julie at the reading hurts. Who would I be without her? Poems, press, marriage, children. I'm not sure any were possible without her as my friend. I shudder to imagine who I'd be. She's given us so many poems and books, but there's something special, personal, in close when she reads her poem to you. It's maybe like listening to an alcoholic praising good wine. No, no, that's wrong. It's like listening to a tiger on the grace of the gazelle. No, not quite. It's like watching a child stare at a first bubble, totally inhabited by the wonder, the reality of light shining in colors, the yellows and greens, the mauve refractions more real than any cruelty, any grasping, any meanness. 
Julie has faults like anyone, sure, but she's the one fully kind person I've known. And poetry inhabits her completely like a crustacean who's found a home. The years of late nights reading poems to each other on the phone, Lerner to Bruce, Bruce to Julia, Julia to Lerner, to Julia, to Bruce, then one day no Lerner. Then two decades, just Julie and Bruce and the readings and ghosts. I'm trying to make a poem here without Julie, without getting her edits and reactions, without her patience, which is a sort of sphinx, but also totally human, humane, a mitzvah, down to her fingernails, grabbing my arm to get up the stairs after the reading. Thanks, Julie. Um, I'll read that one to you when I fix it. Only a couple more stairs here. I loved your poem, by the way. Clear and clever. The conceit's good, but your work's also getting more metaphorical than a hummingbird at a window. Looking into some world I'd never imagined. Some forever. One more step now. That was Bruce Isaacson reading his wonderful poem, Julie Painted. Um about Julia Vinograd. It was beautiful. Terrific poem. And the Julia Vinograd benefit will be this Sunday, January 6th, from 1.30 to 5, Chapter 510 and the Department of Make-Believe, it's the name of the place, 2301 Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. We hope to see lots of you there, and I'm sure that Julia's spirit will be there. Bruce will be there, and perhaps we'll read that poem. Uh, he may have written more. I know that Jan Steckel has written some beautiful works about Julia, and she was very, very close to her as well. So those are all good events. You got time, Nina, for one more yes, poem to bring us out of this uh, I, program here? I think I do. As I was rushing through the year, uh, I stumbled upon Thanksgiving like we all did. And this is called A Poem of Thanksgiving 2018. We have just lived through epic and dramatic days when our external lives dominated the inner, beginning with the felt imperative that we had to get out the vote and not forget to vote ourselves. The tsunami of fascism rising on the horizon had to be stopped. Then the environment turned smoky. The sun turned red, the skies dark and murky. People wore masks covering fear and dread. The children grew wild with being kept inside. Adults longed to open the windows for fresh air, precious air. The president visited and offered his scornful advice for our dead neighbors and over 7,000 newly made homeless camping out in a parking lot, sleeping in cars and in tents. He blamed the tree-huggers and lovers of trees for this disaster amidst charges of election fraud and demands for recounts. Then came the wind shift and quenching rain, liberation, 
coinciding with the official day of thanks and the dawning acknowledgement that we rest uneasy on Indian lands. The rain offers puddles for reflection as the interior world slowly reemerges. I prepare like the legendary grasshopper for the interior journey of the upcoming solstice and the darkness where solutions incubate and evolve. Wonderful. And there's just time actually for me to read a little poem of mine by, about Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy, dad and mum, having a go. Laurel, mum, feelings hurt, weepy. Hardy, dad, pompous, certain, angry, bossy. Both loved, both mocked. They'll never part. They'll never be at peace. Mum and dad, the family, all in a pair of marvelous clowns. Marvelous clowns. Just like Nina and me. This is Jack Foley and... Nina Serrano. And we're saying goodbye for this program, and we'll be back the next first Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And Rod, thank you for doing it. Listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, K248BR 97.5 in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org.